Oh, Father, our God in heaven, we do proclaim as your people that you are worthy. Father, you are worthy of all blessing and glory and honor. For the Lamb was slain and has purchased for himself people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. And Lord, we are part of that people that you have purchased for your glory. And so we say, you are worthy. Father, you are worthy for us to gather and to hear your word opened. Lord, we are like the psalmist who lives in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And so, like the psalmist, we ask that you would fill us with your glory, that you would fill us with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and that your presence would be among us as we open your word, that you would give us insight and understanding, and that we would apply, that you would apply by your spirit to our hearts, and that we would receive uh, these words to us, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Please be seated. This is the last sermon in the book of Job. We're going to preach, um, at least for now. So, brothers and sisters, your suffering has ended. <laughs> now, in all seriousness, um, as we have been suffering with Job, uh, we have seen that there is certainly much in this book about suffering the suffering in our world, the suffering that we face. As human beings, the suffering that we face as Christians, we have learned so many what I call wisdom lessons because the book of Job is wisdom literature and we're meant to learn how to live in a fallen and broken world with all the suffering in and around us. And there's much that we've learned and there's much that we haven't had time to say. And that we haven't been able, been, been able to get to. And maybe down the road we can circle back. As we wrap up this story in Job, I want to remind us that we cannot read, we cannot understand the book of Job completely and fully unless we read it and understand it in light of the gospel. Unless we read it and understand it in light of Christ and his person and his work. So as we come to the end of this book, what is revealed for us in chapter 42 is a picture of the gospel. And that really is the main the main point that, that I want to get across today in various ways, and that is that the book of Job is a picture of the gospel, and it's a picture of the gospel in at least two ways that we're going to look at. 
this morning. First, the book of Job is a story of the gospel, and it becomes very clear at the end of the book what God, through his spirit, who inspired this book to write, what he is doing here and what he's trying to show us. And then secondly, the main character in the book, Job, is a type of Christ. He is a foreshadow of the one to come, Jesus our Lord. And so let's look at those two ways the book of Job pictures the gospel in a little more detail. And to do that, I want you to open with me to Job chapter 42. If you're not there already, Job chapter 42, it's page 551. If you're using a Bible from the pew. Job chapter 42, page 551. And at the very end here, these closing words, uh, the Lord says this in Job 42, verse 7. Job 42, verse 7. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not deal with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job. Now this ending of the book of Job really follows the story of the gospel. The, the gospel story really has three parts to it. First, mankind has sinned. Mankind has fallen. Mankind has broken God's laws. Second, God is angry. He is full of wrath at sin because he is jealous for his own glory. But third, the third act, the third part of the story is that God doesn't deal with his people based on their sins, but he deals with them based on the blood, sacrifice, and intercession of another. And so I want to break this down in a little more detail, what I've just stated. You see, you and I, we have, we have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And in this story, in, in this gospel story at the end of the book of Job, it is these three friends that are identified as the sinners. God clearly identifies them. Why? Because they haven't spoken rightly about God. Let's read verse 7 again. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job... That the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now we need to answer two questions about the Lord's proclamation of this guilty verdict on the three friends. The first question is how did these three friends speak wrongly about God? How did they speak wrongly? 
The second question is, is how did Job speak rightly? This is what God says. They spake, spoke wrongly and Job spoke rightly. So first, how did the three friends speak wrong about God? Well, what I want you to see here is that we can't go back and read all of what they said. We just don't have time for that. But what I want you to, 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 to understand is that the friends... These three friends, as they were speaking to Job throughout the book, starting in chapter 3, all the way through really chapter 37, with Job talking in between them, in there, these three friends, in essence, they, they basically had a right theology. They, they, basically, they basically got... God right. I mean, in a certain sense, they were right. They, they said on multiple occasions that, that God is the one who is to be feared. They, they said God has manifold wisdom, Job. They, they told Job that God has great power. And they said that God has love toward the righteous and hatred toward the sinner. And, and all of that is true. All of that's true. These three friends, in other words, what they could do is they could, they could, as we say, dot all of their theological I's and they could cross all of their theological T's. They had their theology right. But here is where they got it wrong. Where they got it wrong is when they applied their theology to Job. That's where they were dead wrong. Because Job was an innocent sufferer. They said that Job had sinned when he had not. You see, it's not ultimately our theology that God cares about. Listen to me. It's not ultimately our theology that God cares about. Yes, we need to have right theology. Yes, we need to have right thoughts of God. But if you don't apply your theology correctly, even to those who are suffering, you will not speak of God what is right. You see, you can say you believe in Christian love and unity. I can say I believe in Christian love and unity all day long. But when someone hurts you, when someone offends you, what do you do? Do you take time to patiently go to them in love and humility and listen and talk and engage? Or do you ignore them? Do you write them off? Do you think ill of them rather than thinking the best about them? You see, how you apply your theology to others, how you live your life is ultimately what is the issue before God. That's what God had a problem with these three friends. They had all of their theology right, and yet when it came to applying it, they were dead wrong. And this reminds us, friends, that our sin is always, it is always first vertical. 
before it is horizontal. We always stand before God. Our words and actions will be held accountable to God. The friends had all of the right theology. They were just like a good member of Grace Community Bible Church. And yet, and yet, they misapplied it. And that's what God was getting them for. That's what God said. You have not spoken of me what is right. Second, how did Job speak about God in a right way? Because God says this, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So how did Job speak of God what was right? Well, certainly in the beginning of the book of Job, right, when Job is first afflicted, he first suffers, we read some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away Blessed be the name of the Lord. I love that line. I love what Job says there. And yet, and yet after his suffering, after it wore on, after it became more intense, and it went on for we don't know how long, but it went on for a period of time, Job then at that point started to question He started to question God, just like you and I. You know, we can respond correctly when the suffering first happens, but then when it lasts on and on and on and it doesn't go away, it wears us out. And that's what happened with Job. Job lost touch with reality as the suffering drew on day after day after day. It caused him to turn inward, to be focused on himself. But in all of that, interestingly, I find this so remarkable. In all of that, God doesn't call Job out for his suffering. He doesn't say that Job has spoken wrongly about God. The Lord's perspective here at the very end of the book is, the, is that in the whole... In the whole, Job spoke of God what was right, even though he lost touch with reality. Even though he drew inward. Even though he needed to be restored in a relationship with God. Even though he needed his eyes to be opened to God once again. Yet, in all of what Job said, he spoke right about God. All this is to say, all this is to say that, that, that this is a picture of the gospel. It is so clear. We have here three friends who have sinned and spoken against God as they should not have spoken. Not only has mankind sinned against God, but in, in, in a certain sense, in a certain sense, As they have spoken wrongly about God, God, we see, is angry at their sin. God says it in verse 7, that his wrath is kindled against Job's friends. Look at it again. It came about, verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, 
that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. You see, something you need to know is that God's anger and wrath is completely just and fair, like it was here against these three friends. His anger and wrath against sin is completely just and fair, for without anger towards sin, there would be no punishment of sin. And if there's no punishment of sin, God would not be just and he would not be holy. Just like we sang, holy, holy, holy. God would be not, he would not be holy if there was no punishment for sin, if he didn't have anger against our sin. But God's anger is kindled against these three friends, against their words, against their action. Finally, though, part three of the gospel story is not only has mankind sinned and deserves God's wrath, but God deals with people in grace. Certainly God did not have to show kindness toward these friends. Certainly he did not have to, but this is exactly what he does by providing a blood sacrifice. Look at verse 8. God says, now therefore, here's the remedy God offers. Take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right. He says it again as my servant Job has. What is interesting about this is that in the law, if you go back and you look in Leviticus, for example, there was really only one animal sacrifice that was needed, and yet God calls for 14, 7 and 7, 14 animal sacrifices. And it again reminds us of the severity of the friend's words toward Job. Their words mattered, and our words mattered. How you use your words verbally or your words in written form through email, through text, through social media, they matter to God. Our words matter to God, and so he calls for 14 animal sacrifices to be made in atonement for the sin of these friends of Job. And Job is requested to pray on behalf of these friends, Job becomes a mediator. I think this is so amazing. He, he prays on behalf of them. And what does it say at the end of verse 9? Look at it, verse 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuai and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them. And what do we see? And the Lord accepted Job. And this truth points, as I've said, to the second aspect of how Job pictures the gospel. And that is, Job is a type of Christ. And there are several ways I want to mention where we see Jesus in Job in this book. Let me just mention a few. Job, like Jesus, was a righteous and innocent sufferer. Job, like Jesus, was a righteous and innocent sufferer. If there's any other likeness in the book of Job that we're meant to see, it's this. 
It's this fact from the very beginning of the book, even through all throughout the book, we read, even at the end here, we read that Job did not sin. Yes, he was a sinner by nature. And yes, we can see glimmers and hints of sin, but we understand throughout this book that Job is an innocent sufferer. There's nothing that he did to merit the suffering in terms of sin. Secondly, Job, like Jesus, Job, like Jesus, was handed over to Satan to be inflicted with sufferings. Job, like Jesus, was handed over to Satan to be inflicted with various sufferings. And we see this throughout the life of Christ. We see this at at the temptation of Christ. And we see this at the very end of his life. Third, Job, like Jesus, was mocked and mistreated by his friends. Abandoned, ridiculed, rejected. Number four, Job, like Jesus, after suffering, became a priestly mediator between God and man. And we saw that. We saw that here where Job prays for these three friends. Number five, Job, like Jesus, became fully and publicly vindicated. We see that God accepted Job here at the end. And finally, Job, like Jesus, in the end was exalted to receive honor and glory even more than before. So it is crystal clear. It is crystal clear that we are meant to see in Job a a foreshadow of Jesus, a foreshadow of the one to come. It is no accident. It is no accident. And so if the book of Job... If the book of Job is a story of the gospel, if it's a story of the gospel and Job is a type of Christ, what does this mean for us? What does the book mean for us on this side of the cross? We are not in Job's day. We are not living with Job. To put the question differently, what does the gospel, how can we as Christians live in light of the suffering we experience? What are we supposed to see as Christians about the book of Job when we come to the end and all of the loose pieces are tied up? What are we supposed to see? Well, really, there are two big picture lessons There are two big picture lessons that we take away, not only from this last section, but really from from the entire book of Job. Because in reality, we can't sort of divorce and put sermons in sort of nice, neat categories, right? Yes, we can only spend 45 minutes on one sermon, but really, these lessons have been culminating in this book as we have read through the book. Um, as you read through the book of Job. So these lessons are sort of summaries to the book as a whole and what the end of Job teaches us about the gospel and suffering. First lesson is this. Lesson number one, the gospel, the gospel calls you to suffering in this life. The gospel calls you to suffering in this life. Now this 
Friends, this is not a popular message. <laughs> this is not something we like to hear. Right? We love our comfort. We love our ease. No one likes to suffer. Right? None of us do. But the book of Job, the book of Job in reality is not, it's not ultimately about human suffering. The book of Job is about suffering as a believer. This is what we're meant to see in this book. Job, a believer, suffered greatly. It's what we see from the very beginning. He suffered so very greatly. And as such, as such, far from, far from running from suffering, far from doing all that we can do to get out from suffering, though suffering is hard, though suffering is unwanted, we should embrace our suffering as a call, as a Christian. Do you realize this, brothers and sisters? The gospel calls you to suffering. We are told over and over and over again in the Bible that we will experience suffering as a believer. We are told over and over and over again in the Bible to do what? To take up our cross and to follow him. We are even told, we are even told that suffering is a gift from God. Listen to what Paul says. For to you it has been granted or gifted for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him, not only to come to him as a Christian, but also what? To suffer for his sake. Suffering is a gift. We have to see our suffering like that. We have to let the scripture inform our mind. It's these lessons, it's these wisdom lessons that we are learning. And we have to realize that the gospel calls you and I as believers to suffering. But I want to tell you that this suffering that you and I experience here in this life this call to suffering as believers, it is not, I think sometimes we think this is, for, this is for missionaries on the front lines. The gospel call to suffering is for people like uh, Richard Wormbrand, who suffered greatly for Christ. And we honor men like him. We respect men like him. But this call to suffering is for all the suffering we experience in this life. For physical suffering, like, for example, cancer. Or financial suffering, like job loss. Or emotional suffering, like grief. Or relational Suffering, like, like a divorce. All of the suffering that you and I experience is part of the gospel call to suffering. And, and let me give you a story. I want to I relate to you a story that I read of a, of a, of a woman named Kelly who, who really brought this home to my heart as I read her story and the suffering that she went through. So Kelly, as she tells her story, was a young Christian very young Christian. In fact, she was 12 years old when she was involved in an automobile accident. 
It was July 29th, 2000. And that day, Kelly remembers, changed her life forever. She says, I was an active 12-year-old kid from Colorado who loved theater and snowboarding and couldn't wait to start seventh grade. She tells about a road trip with her family in which she was lying down in the back seat along this road trip, very long road trip, through the prairies of Nebraska. And here's part of the story that she recounts. Suddenly I woke to the most horrifying sound of my brother screaming and yelling profanities that I have never heard from his mouth. I sat up. Now remember, she's lying back in the, in the back seat of the, of the car. I sat up just in time to see the guardrail in front of me, and then everything went black. I woke up to the sound of sirens, with the world spinning around me and seven paramedics hovering two feet above my face. When they noticed I had regained consciousness, they shouted, She's awake! She's awake! And then they asked, can you feel your toes, Kelly? Can you feel your fingers? And then how many fingers am I holding up, Kelly? And in utter confusion, I screamed, she says. I don't care how many toes I have. I don't care about all these things. What happened? Who are you? Where is my family? She's in utter confusion. Thankfully, Kelly reconnected with her family a short while later And when she's talking with her mom, Kelly's mom asks her this this question. She says, Kelly, can you feel your legs? I replied, yes, but mom, where's my arm? Where is it? Is it attached? You see, in this auto accident, and Kelly goes into a lot more detail than I have to share with you this morning. It's a powerful, powerful story of what God has done in this woman's life. But in this auto accident, she suffered a severe arm injury that severed and snapped five key nerves from her spinal cord. And that left one-fourth of her body paralyzed. And she suffers to this day, now 22 years later, with chronic pain. Kelly has suffered multiple surgeries and financial debts all because of this. Multiple, multiple, and she recounts it. And the point I am making here, brothers and sisters, in telling this story is that Kelly, like Job, is a sufferer. And here's here's the point. Her ordinary suffering. We would say this is an ordinary tragedy that happens in this world. That ordinary suffering, what I'm saying is not outside God's call, the gospel call to suffer. You see that. Like Job. Like Job, you and I are called to suffer however ordinary we think our suffering is. Like Job, there may be no sin that we can identify for why we are suffering. Simply, you have been called upon by God to suffer for his sake. The gospel calls us to suffering in this Life, But that isn't the final word. It's not the final word in Job. And so the book of Job continues. 
And we have an epilogue. Look at verse 10. We read on here in verse 10. Look at it with me. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed to his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, there were no women No women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. I love this ending. We love endings like this. We love stories that end with happy ever after. And that is how this ends. We, we don't like reading tragedies. I don't know who likes reading a tragedy. I mean, maybe sometimes some people, I mean, Shakespeare did well writing tragedies. <laughs> but we don't like reading tragedies in general. Why? Because as we sung this morning, our world is broken and we know it and we feel it. But the gospel not only promises us that we will suffer in this life. The second lesson we learn is that the gospel promises you an end to suffering in the life to come. And that's what we see here in the end of the book of Job. Job is restored. Now the question might be asked, the question I have, the question you've had as you read through the book of Job, is this a promise of double-fold restoration of double-fold prosperity after the suffering is ended? Is this? The answer is no, because Job is unique. Right? What is God saying here? What is the principle we are learning here? What the end of the book of Job teaches us is it teaches us that God chose to bless Job It teaches us that God chose to bless him despite all that Job said, despite all that went on. Job is blessed, and it is not because of Job's behavior. It's because of God's grace. And I say this. I say this with the authority of Scripture because of what James says about Job. James gives a little interpretation of Job at the end. And in James chapter 5, verse 11, it says this, You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now what I love about this passage is that it says that Job endured... 
and God is gracious. It doesn't say God is gracious because Job endured the suffering. It says that Job endured and God is gracious. Grace, in order for it to be grace, cannot be under obligation. God had no, under, he had no obligation to bless Job in the end, but he did. He blessed Job. He blessed Job twofold, double-fold. The book could have ended with verse 9. It could have ended. It would have been sort of complete. But you know what? We get a window into God's heart. And we get a foreshadow of what is to come. When we look at this principle, the greater storyline of the Bible, we see that as Christians, we will truly be blessed in the end. Amen? We truly will be restored in the end. Because, why? Because God is compassionate and merciful. Because he is one day, one day we will be delivered from all suffering. When? When God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning mourning or crying or pain. The ending of the book of Job is a foreshadow that for the believer, there will be a happy ever after. There will be for us as believers. So I want you, I want you to recognize, brother, that not brothers and sisters, that not only does the gospel call us to suffer in this life, the gospel gives us a promise that suffering will end in the life to come. And some of you are thinking, you know what, Pastor Dan? I know that, but that just seems so far away from me right now. I am in the midst of a terrible amount of suffering. You don't know what I am going through. I mean, you can, you, you, you can hardly make it through each day. The suffering is so thick. Maybe that is some of you. I know that is some of you, but I want you to take heart to these words from James. Just before, just before James says what he does about Job and his endurance and the compassion and mercy of God, listen to what James says. And I want you to hear these words as from the Lord. Therefore, be patient, brothers and sisters. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient in your suffering. Strengthen your heart, for the coming of the Lord is near. The coming of the Lord is near. James and Job are saying that the gospel promises an end to the suffering in the life to come. And so as we, as we press on in the middle of 2022, as we press on in this year, I don't know all of the suffering in your life. I know some of it, 
but I don't know all of it. And I certainly don't know all the suffering that you will one day experience. And, and we don't know the suffering that we are going to experience as a church, as the body of Christ. But Job, you know what? Job is a book full of wisdom. It's a book full of wisdom for suffering. And in this way, Job is like any other good book. It is a classic. It is, it is a book for the ages. I just feel bad for Job who had to endure all he did for our sake. But I think, I really believe that Job would say it was worth it all because of all that we have learned in this book. So, brothers and sisters, let's not waste Let's not waste the lessons that we have learned in the book of Job. Let's not waste them. Turn again and again to the book of Job before you suffer and in your suffering and after your suffering maybe has abated. Turn to the book of Job again and again. I praise God. We praise God together for the book of God and we praise God for his grace in all of our suffering. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.